Okay, so we're looking at Nehemiah today. For the next 13 plus weeks, we'll be going through the book of Nehemiah. You might have guessed from the reading that this, uh, the text is quite different from the previous text that we've been looking at. First of all, it's in the Old Testament, and it's, uh, it's essentially stories. Nehemiah is a, book, uh, it's a story uh, compared to the other texts that we've read, which is mostly about doctrines and teachings and ideas. Uh, the next few weeks we'll be looking at a story. And I think, of course, stories, we all love stories, I think. Um, there's power in stories. I, uh, I noticed that a number of our congregants as well love stories, love reading or uh, love films, and we like to be in, like, uh, immersed in stories, right? Uh, stories are powerful. They are loved by all. And as you know, the Bible is full of stories. And I think for me as well as a th- tra- somebody training in theology, it's easy to forget that, like, that it's full of stories. It's, um, uh, God, the, the story of God revealing himself is given to us in the forms of stories. Um, and so this series, I think, hopefully it'll be a bit different from the previous uh, reflections in that these are mostly uh, stories in which we try to uh, immerse ourselves. And of course, that also means that there are a few things that we need to keep in mind. First of all, uh, when, we th- when we read these stories, we approach them like we do any stories. Um, we don't necessarily try to correlate them too much to us. Like Nehemiah is not you and me. Uh, the context is not, the context of Jerusalem is not Edinburgh today. All, even though there will certainly be parallels, there's going to be a uh, story. We take approach them as stories. Uh, we don't moralize too much. Uh, we try, we'll try not to draw too much principles and lessons, although certainly they will surely be there. But just like you approach a movie, a good movie or a, a good book, you approach it to relate to the human experience of the community of faith, to see them in that reality of the story. And through that, to see God working in that reality. Uh, so these are, uh, the stories have a lot of facts, a lot of uh, details. And even today, uh, the story is going to involve a lot of characters. So you have to hang on and uh, really... Uh, get, get, a, get a good grasp of the characters. By the way, some of the chapters have 70 verses. So that's, that's just the way it is, uh, the whole book. Um, but that's what we're going to be going through. The name Nehemiah uh, in Hebrew is Nehemiah. And it's a beautiful name. It means to be comforted by God, to be comforted by Jehovah. Uh, Naham, the root word Naham, from which Nehemiah comes uh, it, it means to have compassion. And often it means to comfort and to console those who are in need of consolation. So uh, this verse, the, the verse to comfort often comes to describe God, the way God relates with human beings. Uh, to turn away from anger and disappointment and to turn towards compassion and forgiveness. Of course, names are important, you know that. Especially in the Bible, names are important. In certain cultures, in my culture as well, names are important. Nehemiah, Nehemiah, the name is uh, very important. It tells a story as well. Uh, for example, Nahum, you may know that there's a prophet named Nahum. Uh, the name also comes from Nehemiah, the same root. And na- the, the story of Nahum, of course, uh, as you may know, is one of comfort in which God tells the people of Israel through Nahum that the great empire of Nineveh will one day fall. Nineveh is a brutal, is a powerful, 
is a boastful empire, uh, destroying the lives of the aggressor. And Nahum, the prophet Nahum, is sent by God as a comforter to say that even this great kingdom will one day fall. Of course, today we live in an age of invasion and war, of oppressive powers, of empires. We can think of wars going on in, in certain sectors of the world. And we can relate to that. The comfort that comes in knowing that um, one day this great evil empire will, will crash and burn. G Joshua, the name is meaningful. Jo God saves. And of course, the Joshua is the root word for the name of Jesus, Yeshua. Uh, Jesus or God saves. God is delivering. So names are important. Nehemiah, as the name implies, comforted by Jehovah is important. So we need to ask from uh, the first place, what is the book of Nehemiah about? What is God comforting the people uh, from? What is, it, what is the experience that God is comforting them in this book of Nehemiah? When the book of Nehemiah is written, or when, the book, when, when these stories unfold, it's, about, it's, it's a time of uh, immense crisis for the people of the Jews. You may remember from last Advent Christmas season when we looked at uh, chapters of Isaiah. In, uh, during that time, I mentioned very briefly that uh, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that one day the, the people of Israel will be defeated by the enemies of, of, uh, like, such as Babylon and ultimately by the, the Persians. Uh, the two kingdoms, at the time when Isaiah was saying they were, they were in time of prosperity, but Isaiah prophesied that one day the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to take you all away to a foreign place. You will not have temples, you will not have worship. And of course, that is horribly ex uh, received by the people, but that truly happened. And the people of uh, Judah, the southern and northern, the two kingdoms of the Jews were scattered, taken away by what is called the captivity, the Babylon captivity. So the question comes to mind in the, in the heart of the people, in the minds of the people. What happened to the eternal kingdom that God promised us? Was that all a gimmick? Was that for real? What happened to the promise that there will be an eternal line, the line of David, the, king of, uh, the line from the king of David that will be, uh, that rule this earth in peace and prosperity? to the ends of the earth, to the ends of time. It's supposed to be an example to the nations who don't worship God, that look at this nation that worships God. They are a prosperous nation. None of that happened. It all crashed and burned. And now the people of God are living in scattered places in Babylon, in uh, different parts of uh, the, uh, the Near East, ancient Near East. The question is, was that all a gimmick? Was that all for real? By 720 BC, um, the Assyrians had captured them. By 580 BC, uh, the people of God were completely taken away, um, completely defeated, and they became the subjects of these great empires. And it was during this time that, again, just for, I guess, FYI, the prophets Zephaniah, Lamentations, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, all of these prophets were active during that time when the people were scattered. You might, if you read them, you'll notice that th these are the emo stage of the people of God. Like there's a lot of uh, lamentations, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, it's the, so the songs are all in minor, essentially. Like there's a lot of uh, agony and mourning. 
And these songs emerged from that context. So this was a time when the people of God were going through some kind of identity crisis. Uh, are we still God's people? Like, what happened to all the promises that God had given to us? Uh, where is God in this? Is he still with us? Is he still um, going to keep his promise? Or uh, was that all just to make us feel good? Um, and it was during this time in Babylon that Nehemiah was born. Nehemiah was born, very important. I think it, it was so interesting for me to uh, make these connections, but Nehemiah was not born in Jerusalem. He was not born in Israel. He was born in a foreign land. He's a, a diaspora true and true, uh, an immigrant true and true, so to say. Just, uh, just like I, I suppose most of us, most of you here in, the, in this congregation, born in a foreign land. And it was a time when the people of uh, the, the Jews were uh, feeling the sentiment of despair and they were hopeless. And still, when you read Nehemiah, you realize that even still, they, were, they dared to hope for God's uh, comfort. The fact that Nehemiah's mother named, uh, I'm assuming that the mother or father named him, but the fact that the parents named Nehemiah comforted by God shows that they still had the hope that God's comfort is still going to come to them. Right. So Nehemiah is growing up, you can imagine, and there was a glimmer of hope in, in when, uh, when Nehemiah becomes, uh, uh, is, is, uh, during the stage of his, uh, uh, his growth. And this was when the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. Uh, the famous king Cyrus, um, he, 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 he was a very powerful king. He defeated the Babylonians, long story short. And he allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city. And you can imagine the people of the, the Jews, suddenly hope stirs. Suddenly they're like, wait, I think God is with us after all. He's with us. He's, he's allowing this to happen. Cyrus is the anointed one. They, they even use the very holy, uh, sacred language of the anointed one for Cyrus. The messianic language to talk about Cyrus. God is with us and hope soars. And of course, you read about this in Ezra, the book of Ezra, chapter 1 to 6, when uh, Cyrus sends back uh, 40,000 plus people to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, to re uh, rebuild the worship, the city. Um, so the diaspora, the, the exiled community is excited. Um, and so this is the context in which Nehemiah grows up. Nehemiah himself is, he's not living in a free land like, uh, like, um, like us. He's living, living as a subject. And his role, he was trained, probably against his will, he was trained to work in the courts, in the royal duties. Uh, we, we might even use the very uh, sketchy term, he was even groomed for the royal duties. Uh, he was one, just like Daniel and uh, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you might remember. He was being trained and uh, prepared for royal duties. And we can, you might imagine that he grew up in the courts, far away from the Jewish community. He most likely did not have exposure to his roots. Uh, he grew up as a foreigner, uh, immersed in the, 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 the culture, the, even, might we say even the worship of the foreign gods. And he grew up in this, uh, in this courts. And he, he, here's, here's Nehemiah growing up and finally he enters the court and becomes uh, the cup bearer as we read in the last verse. And Cyrus sends 
the people back to Jerusalem to, to rebuild the temple. Turns out, it was not as glorious as they had expected. The second temple, uh, the reconstructed temple, was smaller. It was much, much more, um, it's not as grand as the, the first temple. To the point that in Ezra chapter 3, and I find it so interesting, like in Ezra chapter 3, when they were building the temple, the elders who had seen the original temple, they saw the foundation, they saw the structure, the, the architectural design and uh, the blueprint, they saw the foundation and they wept. This was supposed to be a time of joy and victory, but they could not help weep because it was nothing compared to the original temple. It was nothing in comparison to the original glory that the first temple had, that was broken down. So uh, it's Isaiah chapter 3, we're told that the elders wept. They wept out loud uh, because they, they had anticipated this moment that they had been anticipating for, this event, uh, supposed to be the fulfillment of their hopes, but they were sorely disappointed. And to add to the disappointment, even though the building had started, there were so much protests and so much uh, resistance from their enemies that they had to put it on hold for 17 years. The building was put on hold for 17 years. They could not proceed. Uh, the king had to intervene. Like uh, The successor of Cyrus, Darius, had to intervene and uh, put a notice saying, get this done. Um, so to add to the disappointment, things were not working as well as that hoped. People, I imagine, people would have become cynical and disappointed with this vision of uh, restoration. But Nehemiah is living in the court, and we, I, I imagine him, uh, he's, uh, he's at least happy, let's say. At least work is going on, right? I mean, he, he's thinking, at least the temple is w w completed now. Something must be happening. At least something, some worship must be happening, right? And so he sends his friend, his brother, Hanani, who went to Jerusalem, and visited, went around, went, went, uh, went to Jerusalem, and came back. He asked his brother, Hanani, I want to hear all about it. Tell me about it. How is the temple? How, is, how are things there? Are things progressing? Are things happening? The truth was that, as I mentioned, after uh, the time of Cyrus, after the time of uh, Darius, Jerusalem had fallen into complete disarray. It was complete chaos. This was a very obscure period that not a lot of records exist. Uh, the 40,000 people who returned, they came back hoping for a uh, return to paradise, so to say, sorely disappointed. They were relocated in small, small spaces. They had no space to make a proper living, no space for proper housing. There was no proper system by the authorities. Um, and to make it worse, the rich people were taking advantage of this power vacuum, this power struggle. And they were using their power to get even more richer at the expense of the poor. They're oppressing the poor, the helpless, they're overtaxing, and they were getting even more richer. And of course, it was this context that the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. The, the previous two books, Haggai and Zechariah, are two prophets who spoke against this oppression by, by the rich people. But it, this was such a situation, and things were getting worse. The temple, the worship of God, Jerusalem was completely neglected. The walls had broken. Religious life had stagnated. Even from a political standpoint, uh, which of course Nehemiah is 
very much involved in the politics, as you will see later. Even from a political standpoint, there is no wall. The, Jerusalem is vulnerable. Uh, again, this is a very volatile uh, period in history. There's not just the inner rottenness of the society. If there's any threat from outside, if there's any army that tries to invade Jerusalem, Jerusalem will crumble. There's, there's nothing protecting them any longer. The walls had fallen. Everything is in disarray. Everything is a mess. As a community of faith, as a community of God's people, Hanani essentially tells Nehemiah, we are nowhere, nowhere near the grand vision. We're nowhere near the grand prophecies that we had hoped for. The glimmer of hope with Cyrus, it didn't work out. It's, it's a flop show in, in a sense. When Nehemiah heard this news, it completely shattered him. He just broke down. Uh, and we see that he, 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 he broke down. He mourned for a few days. He prayed and fasted for a few days. I mean, imagine the intensity of, of, this, uh, of this lamentation, right? Uh, it completely shattered him. And it says in verse 4, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He, he just completely broke down and uh, just uh, poured his heart out to God. The focus for today's sermon, of course, is that prayer. What was his prayer like? What, what, how did he pray? Uh, and when he pours out his heart to God, how did he pray? And I think it's worth just going through reading uh, from verse 5 uh, one more time. So just follow along as I read. Nehemiah 1 verse 4. 5, sorry. Lord, the God of heaven, the, God, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants. The people of Israel, uh, for the people of Israel, I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are in the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayers of your servants who, are, who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Just a few thoughts that we can uh, uh, reflect on here. First of all, we can tell very clearly that he experienced and he empathized with the heartbreak of the community. He felt, he, he felt it in his own soul, the disappointment and the heartbreak of the community. And I thought it's interesting because earlier when, when I mentioned about the elders in Ezra chapter 3 who wept, when they saw the new temple, because it was not as grand and it's nothing compared to the original. At least for them, they saw the original. They knew the loss that they had. Nehemiah, like I said, he was, he was born and brought up in Babylon in the, in the courts of a, a foreign god, a foreign king. And yet he was able to empathize and experience the heartbreak and the trauma of the community. 
uh, he understood and uh, experienced, unlike many others who grew cynical, unlike many others, the rich and powerful who ignored this reality, or maybe out of their own trauma, out of their own, out of their own trying to evade, trying to run away from the reality, or uh, who ignored, and even, indeed, unlike many of the rich people who took advantage of this crisis to benefit themselves, unlike these people, Nehemiah experienced and empathized with the heartbreak of the community. We see that as the first point. Number two, he realizes that only God can help the people of, uh, of Israel. The people were helpless, they were hopeless, except for God, except for God's help. And he realizes something important, which is that even the messianic figures of Cyrus, and we cannot under, overstate how, what, what a massive empire, emperor uh, Cyrus was. Even today, like in, in, even in recent scholarship, in historical studies, people are, are only kind of really understanding what a big deal Cyrus was, that he was the, the lord of the world, so to say, the emperor of the world. Even this king, Cyrus, could not make it happen. Even Darius, the successor of the, the Persian king who ruled from the edge of, one edge of the world to the other edge of the world, they could not make it happen. Even the faithful prophets like Haggai and Zechariah and Zerubbabel, another governor, indeed, even he, Nehemiah, they could not make this happen. Only God can make this happen. In reality as well, there's too many, too many enemies. There are too many threats. In, in, in facing them. There's too many political intricacies that he has to go through. And only God can help him in this situation. Thirdly, he realizes that repentance and turning to God is the only option because God is faithful. The community of God, he, he realizes, has failed to keep their side of the covenant. God has been faithful, but they have forgotten their faithfulness. And he knew that it's only when you return to God and stick close to Him, go with Him, that is the only road. Since God, since God is the only one who can help them, it's best to stick close to Him, right? To, to be in His team. And so he realizes that repentance and confession is the only way forward for, for them. And fourthly, and I think most interestingly in my perspective, he knew that he had a role to play. He knew that he had a very crucial, important role to act on this. Because, as he says in this last verse, he was a cupbearer. He was an official in the court. Being a cupbearer, it sounds like a, I don't know, some, uh, somebody just serving wine, but it's much more than that. Like, uh, being a cupbearer places him in a strategic position with the king. As a cupbearer, he is close to power, he's close to influence. He spends a lot of time with the king. Uh, some say that he spends more time with the king than anybody else in the empire. He's always around, he, and he's making sure that things happen, um, meetings happen, um, the, the food is properly prepared. He's like the shadow of the king, so to say. Um, one one uh, um, study breaks it down like this. In order to be a cupbearer, you have to be well-trained in court etiquette. You have to know around, you have to know your way around people, around places, around context, around politics. In order to be a cupbearer, you have to be probably handsome or good-looking and sharp, alert, and aware of your surrounding. In order to be a cupbearer, you have to know how to select wine. 
uh, and it's an important skill because you're dealing with the emperor and uh, there's, there's a Babylonian um, saying that says wine belongs to the master but the credit for it belongs to the cupbearer. So this is an important element of the, the, the social life uh, and of course in a more pragmatic sense as well the cupbearer is responsible for the wine tasting and that's not just an exotic uh, job it's to prevent food poisoning like uh, the kings live a very precarious life they have to be safe protected so the cupbearer is responsible for the safety and the security of the king uh, the cupbearer has to listen to the king he has to be able to converse intelligently with the king and sometimes he has, he's present in confidential meetings of high officials, so to say. Uh, the cupbearer is the closest person to the king. He has direct access to the king. And lastly, the cupbearer has to have the absolute confidence of the king. The, the king has to trust him. Because the king is finding somebody uh, in a very vulnerable position. Uh, just for context, the predecessor of the, the, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, he was killed by somebody close to him, like a, a courtier, somebody in the court. Indeed, actually it says he's, he's uh, part of the bed chamber. Uh, somebody maybe who, who cleans the room, I, I'm not sure exactly what, but somebody who works in that close uh, space, just like Nehemiah. So in other words, this is a role that's very sensitive, very, uh, very strategic, and the king has to have absolute confidence on, on uh, the cupbearer. And I think it's quite interesting, if you think about it, that we have a book of a Bible that's dedicated to somebody like this, right? He's not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's not a pastor. He's not a religious leader. He's someone who's working in a foreign pagan court, serving a foreign king uh, in the midst of the temple, in the midst of the palace that's filled with Persian religious culture, right? Not, not Christian, not Jewish, but religious uh, cult. Uh, indeed, the, if you watch the documentaries of Susa, the city that he was in, you, you realize that uh, the palace itself is a temple where the king, the emperor, is worshipped as uh, a divine figure. So this was a person who was working in such context, a person who is in the world, quite literally, a worldly person doing a very worldly work, involve, involving in the most secular of all jobs that you can imagine, like secular concern, uh, building infrastructure, building wall, wine tasting, food prepare, preparation, politics, gossips, politic discussion, handling different, different people, doing admin work for the king, essentially, setting up meetings. This was a man who was doing very worldly work. And we have a book uh, entirely dedicated to somebody uh, such as this. And I think this makes us think about what is God's work, by the way. God's work is in the world. But again, I'm, I'm kind of uh, digressing here. But I think you understand uh, what I'm saying here. So as a cupbearer, he has enormous influence and potential. But this was a very complicated thing for him to take on, to, to, to try to do something about what's happening in Jerusalem. He had to be brave. He had to be tactful. It was a risky and dangerous uh, work to, to try to do this because he could be killed. He could be accused of having political ambitions or he could be accused of trying to cause a re revolution, rebellion. I mean, um, you, you know, uh, you, you might imagine uh, along with me as well. He could be accused of offending the king or offending his ministers, so on and so forth. And I think this is where, I'm, I'm, again, I'm trying to put my own uh, 
reflection on this, but I think this is the reason why he was so shattered. This is the reason why for three days or a few days he lamented and he, he had a crisis. When he heard that all is not well, something had to be done. I wonder, did he have a struggle within himself? Whether he should do something about it. Uh, a few days of prayer and fasting. Did he consider all sides? You know, have sleepless nights, think through the dangers, think, think through risk management, um, consider the prospects, consider his own trajectory. And did he wrestle over this uh, issue? And slowly come to the realization that he had a role to play. He had to do something for the sake of the community. As risky and dangerous it was, he had to do something. And I think this is reflected in his final line of prayer where he says, Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. He's, he, essentially, he's praying, Lord, give courage. Assure me that you will be with me as I go to talk to this king. I might end up dead. I might be successful. I might be unsuccessful. Lord, please give me success in this. So that's the story that we are introduced to in Nehemiah chapter 1. Um, and I think it's, it's, there's so, obviously there's so, so many layers uh, uh, kind of uh, loaded within these verses. But I think this is such a fascinating story of what a man uh, in a foreign court does out of faith, out of his love for the community, out of real compassion for the community. How he re received the news of the bad news and how he responded in prayer and in his decision to act. And this is where the community of God, the Jews, were at that point of time. And it's interesting to read how Nehemiah prayed for that community. So, for conclusion, some, some um, thoughts, reflection, and maybe some, some um, points that we can take away for ourselves. Again, we need to be careful. We are not Nehemiah. We're not living in, in Susa. We're not living in Babylon. This is not Babylon that we're living in. But I think there are some things that we can draw away from Nehemiah's story, Nehemiah's prayer. There's some, some things that Nehemiah's story remind us about the truth of God, about God and ourselves. So the first one, as we have reflected, the first one is just as Nehemiah sought after reality, the truth, Nehemiah asked Hanani, his brother, to tell him how things are. He wanted to hear from somebody who was on the ground, who had uh, who, who went there and saw things right there, who, who got a, a good dose of the reality. He wanted to hear the reality, the truth. And I think this is important for us to remember as well. Even we, we need a good dose of reality, ground zero, reality check every once in a while. Because we live in a world where we, are, uh, we live in multiple layers of narratives and uh, entertainment, uh, and we are easily distracted in this world. Uh, I think every once in a while we need to evaluate and check how things are. Uh, when things are going badly, um, we, we need to uh, confront that. Otherwise, we may go on living our lives without responding to that reality. Uh, uh, in, in sometimes in pretension, as though things are going on okay. So the reality check, the first, the first lesson that we, can, we may draw away from the story of Nehemiah. Secondly, the, uh, uh, to remember that God is the source and the spring of hope and our future. Uh, God, we need to turn to God, especially when things are confusing, things are disappoint, disappointing, and things seem hopeless. 
Um, God may very well use Cyrus. He may use Darius and these kings. He may use humans. But ultimately, he is the root, the branch, and the source of our faith, our trust. Thirdly, repent. To recognize where we might have been unfaithful. Uh, to recognize where we might have failed to follow his will, will and his way. To, uh, instead, to, to do our own thing. Uh, in that case, uh, repentance is to return and to choose to love God, to follow him instead. And fourthly, um, to seek clarity to know what you can do, uh, like Nehemiah. Uh, there's something, some, not always, sometimes uh, all we can do is lament and uh, grief, or all we can do is wait for God to show up. But sometimes there's things that we can do, as Nehemiah realized uh, about himself too. So when, when we, we need to pray for that clarity to understand what we can do, and we need to pray for the courage to do what we need to do to bring change. So Nehemiah or Nehemiah comforted by God. This is a prayer that Nehemiah prays for the community, uh, uh, asking God, comfort your people, O God. Comfort your people by remembering them. Comfort your people by helping them in this moment of crisis, by restoring to them uh, the joy and the uh, vitality of their past experiences. So I just want to uh, pray before we close and uh, go back to singing. Uh, I, I, I just prepared this prayer as slightly, slightly modified and in, in the framework of Nehemiah's prayer. And I think um, let, let, this, yeah, let this prayer be a prayer for us as well, asking God that he would help us to see reality and help us to trust and repent and trust in him and for clarity. Shall we pray? Our Father, this is our prayer, just like Nehemiah prayed that you would comfort your people. Comfort us by remembering us. Comfort us by helping us in when we are in our moments of crisis or difficulty. Comfort us by restoring to us. There are many, among, in fact, all of us who experience uh, perhaps uh, such spiritual life and vitality, maybe in the past, and we remember the memories of being in your presence, experiencing your goodness, hearing your voice in your word. Lord, we ask that you would comfort us by restoring, um, restoring a sense of your presence, a sense of your reality in our life as well. And if there's something, anything that we can do in this point of time towards that, we ask, Lord, that you will use us to comfort your people. We want to say that we will step out, we will be bold, even when we don't feel like it, we will, but we will do what needs to be done. So Lord, we ask that you'll give us courage and we ask that you ultimately use us to comfort your people. We thank you for the example of Nehemiah and help us, Lord, to, um, to be your channel of your presence, your peace and your power in this world. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.